and welcome to an extra special episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and this week's episode is entitled No Man is an Island. special episode of Sacred Cinema this week. I don't mean it's just a special episode, but an extra special episode. Uh, number one, it's Radiothon time here at 2XX, so get subscribing if you've not subscribed uh, already. Some excellent prizes on offer and some great events, uh, which we can, we're going to chat about a bit further uh, on in the show. So an exciting episode in that regard. And what better way to celebrate uh, the 2023 2XX Radiothon by presenting a London Film Festival special episode. Yes, I've been at the London Film Festival, checked out many a flick and every film we're going to be talking about uh this week is from the the gala one of the gala selections at uh, this year's london film festival i'm very excited uh to give some sort of advanced thoughts on some of these films which all of which i very much loved um and it's actually quite coincidental interesting last week we were talking a lot about um contemplating and and pondering life the, the the actual act of pontificating specifically verbally on deep philosophical uh, ideas and and one of the I guess one of the issues that kind of cropped up is we kind of focus mostly on the actual act of the discussions in the films we talked about rather than the substance of the things that were actually talked about and I think this week we're actually going to going to actually very just coincidentally it's the way that these, that these things sort of line up uh, on, on this show is that we're kind of going to talk about the substance of one of those films through talking about these new films. If you listened to last week, we talked about a film called Mind Walk, and we, we very briefly touched on this idea of, of systems theory, the, the idea that the universe is not not a collection of different sort of sovereign things, but, but rather a sort of a collage of different connections. We're simply just lots of different particles and subatomic particles connecting with one another in different ways, and we can't really draw clear black lines between different different things. And I think that and, and specifically in that film, in talking about that, they do discuss the phrase, no man is an island. And in watching these films at the festival this year, at the London Film Festival, I couldn't help keep couldn't help but keep thinking of that phrase, no man is an island. It seemed to permeate through all the films that I've seen so far, not even just the three that we're going to talk about, um, but some of the others as well. Uh, what are those films? Well, uh, I'm very excited to chat about uh, Jeff Nichols' new film, The Bike Riders. We have talked about uh, Jeff Nichols' film in the past on the show, Take, Take Shelter, which is a personal favourite of mine. Uh, so I was very excited to see The Bike Riders. We're then going to chat about Bradley Cooper's new film, Maestro. Uh, and then we're going to finish off with David Finch's new film, The Killer. So three huge directors there, three huge films for 2023, focusing on this phrase, no man is an island. And I think before we actually talk about those films, let's talk about that phrase itself. The, the first part of it, no man. Um, interestingly, all these films do have a male protagonist, or do they? So we're sort of going to t- touch on in a second. Um, so perhaps this is, a, this is a question about masculinity when we talk about men being islands, human beings being islands. Is this always a question that just involves men. I think it's really important point to make, though, at the, at the very outset, that while these films do centre on male protagonists, um, it, there seems to be a very conscious choice from the filmmakers in all of these films, even in how they structure the credits. And I'm not going to give too much away because I know that these films are very new to, to the audiences at the moment. I'm not going to give too much away. But even if you look how they structure some of the credits in, in particularly one of these films, you realise that as much as these men are kind of on paper, the, the protagonists, 
it, the, the female characters in these films have, have an extreme sense of significance uh, and a huge influence on these men's lives. And then they're just as if not more important than, than the actual protagonists' um, journeys throughout these films. We could kind of say that the, 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 the female characters have such a crucial influence. We, we could sort of say that the, that the, the feminine has such a crucial um, influence on the masculine um, that that further exemplifies, further um, conveys this idea of singular things not existing, um, that that's an illusion, that the universe is simply a matter of connections, that there's no men and women or masculine and feminine, but some kind of some kind of cocktail of gen, of fluid kind of masculine energies and fluid feminine energies that kind of mould and meld together in a single individual person who, again, moulds and melds with other individuals, other masculine or feminine individuals. And this idea of, like, fluidity and gender, uh, these concepts have been sort of brought up a lot in the, in the culture recently. And I don't mean to make sort of biological claims here, but it is interesting, perhaps, as we talk about these films, uh, that you talk about... We sort of think about the way that the actions and the behaviour of these characters are so intertwined with the actions and behaviours of their counterparts who may be more feminine or more masculine, etc., etc. But let's get started now um, with Jeff Nichols' new film, The Bike Riders. Um, so basically it's the story of a motorbike club, The Vandals, which started in Chicago, and it's an all-star cast. Um, you've got uh, Austin Butler there, you've got Jodie Comer, you've got Tom Hardy, you've got Michael Shannon. It's It's... I will say just from the get-go, this is a film that I think anyone could see and anyone could enjoy. There is so much about this. And, and I, we're not going to try and talk about this one too much because there's just so much to get through this week. I'm going to try and give equal love to all three of the films, but I could talk forever uh, about the allure that Austin Butler's character, uh, Benny, has in this film. And I, I think we've got to make a point from the outset today that this film certainly lifts up the idea that the allure of the archetypally cool lone wolf slash sigma male kind of uh, this archetype that has certainly gained prominence in social media of late um, with the, the whole Ryan Gosling in Drive meme. I think um, like the, the, the kind of baby driver kind of character that we, I've always wanted to do an episode on that kind of, um, you know, the single lone cool guy that wears a jacket and sunglasses and has a toothpick hanging out of his mouth and drives around in a car. Um, it's certainly something we've touched on. We talked about Drifters all those many episodes ago and, and a few others since. Um, but I kind of feel like Austin Butler's character, Elvis himself, puts all of those characters to shame. He is, by all accounts, ask any men or women that see this movie, uh, that he is undeniably maybe the most one of the coolest, most alluring, charismatic figures you'll ever see in a movie. And you can't just you can't pull away from how just how sick he is in, in this movie. Um, and I think what Nichols does really well in lifting that up, in getting that idea out there, is he does a really good job of not simply reducing him to he's cool just because he drives a motorbike or just because he smokes heaps of cigarettes. Um, he actually has characters that juxtapose um, the Benny character who do all that stuff as well, but they don't come up as cool. They, if, if not a little bit pathetic or a little bit childish, uh, I think it does a really good idea, um, a really good job of having simultaneously having like out and out capital C cool characters like the Austin Butler character, and then having other characters say that the Thomas Hardy character perhaps or uh, the character of Brucey who kind of have a trace of a little boy stuck in a man's body who has this 
idea of, and when you start to think about people in your life who are really cool, maybe guys you went to high school with, that sort of thing, you're like, you know, deep down they were just a little boy that wanted attention, um, that wanted to sit above the lot and, and never really grew up, never really educated themselves, is kind of dumb on the inside sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's because they watched a couple of movies that they want had this idea of who they actually are and it's all a facade, it's all just, you know, an actor performing kind of thing. So there is a, a really, really nice spectrum of cool guys in this film, like almost like one of those evolution charts in a way. Um, but I think we have to say that inherent to the Austin but- Austin Butler's character is not just, and it's not just carried in his demeanour, uh, it's carried in both his demeanour and in literally the dialogue of his his dialogue and the, the character's dialogue is this kind of, he doesn't care what anyone else thinks. This is the archetypally uh, trait of a cool person. If you had to give someone lessons on how to be a cool person, the, the, it is really for for whatever reason. And we don't have time to go through the the deep psychology of it this week. But someone that doesn't care about conventions, doesn't care what other people think of them, doesn't care about um, the customs of the culture, has their own set of rules that they play by, uh, is willing to sort of question the status quo, uh, but also construct their own framework to live by that still maintains peace and isn't terrorising on the rest of society. That's something that we that we uh, very much value and we find very sexy in people, something that we want to get around. And, and and when we talk about the fact that that is so alluring, that it is so appealing, this is, that's what lift ups, that's what lifts up um, the complication of this film, which is ironically, it makes Benny the best man for the job to run this club, right? It makes him uh, the best man for all the women that want to date him. Ironically, by being such a, a great solo uh, rider, you can't help but attract other people. There's a, sort of an inverse ratio happening there, and we see that a lot in all three of these films. So I think also, without sort of moving on from there, because um, I think that's all kind of old news a little bit. The filmmaking, I think, also kind of answers this question a little bit, as does, I think, the other two films we're going to talk about as well, which is, there, or at least offers an answer, which is to say that despite how cool, how archetypally cool, and again, we're in the world of archetypes, this is almost like the most cool guy one can be, even the most cool person, there's this inevitable or continuing significance of those that connect with them or want to connect with them. It's almost comedic how much he loves his buddies in the gang, despite being such a smooth operator on his own, being such a cool solo rider. It's kind of funny how he still wants to have friends and hang around these guys when he doesn't really need them. Um, but also, and probably most importantly, and perhaps the most important point we can make about this film at this point in today's conversation, is that the entire story plays out through the character of Kathy, who's played by Jodie Comer, through her words, through her eyes. And it's almost to say that coolness can kind of only be established, that kind of coolness that we that we find alluring, that we find appealing, that we find to be virtuous somehow. It's only kind of established through the eye of the beholder. It's like, you know, and sort of asks this question, can you be cool in the woods, you know, if there is no one there to hear you be cool, you know, like the falling tree, if there's no one there to witness it? Um, but also as well, if we think specifically about the Austin Butler character, Benny, and in his own mind, he also can't be help. He can't help be drawn to her throughout this film, throughout his story. And I don't want to give away too much what happens, but we are constantly asking this question: Why her, and 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 why anyone for that matter? When he is so self sufficient in a way, is it because he needs her approval? Is it because he needs her on a deeper level? And I think these are the kind of questions we're going to uncover a little bit more in some of the other films we're going to talk about um, in asking this question. But you know, as desirables, these these you know these, these connections ultimately are very desirable. Um, despite the fact that, you know, as as um, as cool as he can be on his own, why does he find connections desirable nonetheless? But I want to kind of flip 
the script a little bit at this point before we go too far down this one this one rabbit hole. Let's say that connections are ultimately desirable, even if you are archetypally cool. Can having connections go too far? Can we have too many connections? But before we move on to our next film, uh, just to remind you while listening to the Radiothon special, um, best celebrated through our uh, London Film Festival involvement uh, here at Sacred Cinema um, on 2XX 98.3 FM. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. And jump onto our website to consider engaging in our Radiothon this year, uh, which runs from the 4th of October right through to Saturday the 21st. And when we have the Radiothon party at the Polo, um, we'll have a subscriber prize draw, um, which includes some Denny Premium Lounge tickets. Uh, the Radiothon party um, is on the 21st of October. And uh, we also would encourage any donations at this time uh, if you're a big su- supporter of um, People Powered Radio uh, and that sort of thing. And, and just a reminder, you know, if, if you want to win some of those fabulous prizes, uh, be sure to um, subscribe because it's only open to subscribers. So thanks so much for um, helping promote and, and, and um, keeping the 2XX alive and thriving and, and we're very much appreciative of all of our listeners and, and subscribers and, and supporters. But moving on now to our next film, Maestro, directed by Bradley Cooper. I want to kind of talk about this film through the lens of the question, what happens when we are perhaps too connected, right, or connected to too many different, you know, connectees, let's say? Well, this is the story of the famous American um, composer, conductor, piano player, Leonard Bernstein, um, but it, it is more so a, a story of marriage uh, then, and his marriage to, uh, to his wife, who's played by Carrie Mulligan. And I think it's a really important first point to make before we engage into the, the, the marital um, issues and that sort of thing is that we can't lie about the fact that Bernstein himself as an individual is an icon uh, in his own right, right? He does stand alone as a historic figure. Um, you know, if we talk about sort of an F. Scott Zelda Fitzgerald kind of situation, you know, even though you have these powerful marriages, we can't deny that there is sort of a, a unique and individual um, role model-esque element to his character, which we also, you know, will explore, we've explored with the, with the Benny. You know, when you, when you have a, an important, prominent individual, um, you, they have their own unique uh, properties and that sort of thing that we have to sort of identify with them. And if you watch a, a film like Tar, or if you watch that episode of Seinfeld with the maestro and he talks about Leonard Bernstein, he has this kind of like deity status amongst... Um, uh, as musicians, classical musicians particularly, but I think that makes it all the more powerful that this film chooses to make his wife a huge part of the story. It's almost to say that, like, even though this guy is such a big guy in his own right, the fact, you know, like, like, it's all the more meaningful that his wife is such an important part of his story and, and, and sort of speaks to the the influence she had on and, and perhaps the reasons why he became such a prominent person or the, the, the person that he came to be. But I don't want to get too sidetracked here. Let, let's get into the, the main points what I'm talking about, about this uh, spreading oneself maybe a bit thin with their connections. What's really crucial to Bernstein's character and is very much evoked in the film is that he almost has this... Let's call let's call it this. It's almost fetish for his fellow man. His fetish for um, not necessarily the common man. And speaking of classical music, American classical music, and, and Aaron Copeland and that sort of thing. But he loves people, and that's very much you know carried in the dialogue. But we also see it in the imagery of the film, and, and it, it sort of shows no bounds without giving too much away. It's almost got this Walt Whitman esque humanism to it. He's he's intertwined with his peers pretty much to a debaucherous level, which is very reminiscent of a lot of music biopics of late, and we could do a whole episode on, on some of the similarities that this film has with some other films of late. 
Um, but what are the ramifications of this? Because that sounds really nice, doesn't it? You know, we all love reading the poetry of Walt Whitman. But um, it's almost the same when you watch this film. And, and this is a heartaching film, I must say. I, I've been really disappointed to see that some of the, the early reviews of this film have been so negative. I loved this movie. And, I mean, I love all the movies we do on this show, <laughs> evidently, or most of them. But I really loved this movie because it couldn't, I couldn't help but feel that... My heart was almost aching thinking about this idea that the breadth of our love for the masses, right, our love for human beings, is kind of in this proportionate relationship with the depth of our love for a given individual, right? So it's almost like this kind of global cosmopolitan, global compassionate love, what you could could also call like agape love in a way, is proportionally stacked against our loyalty to an individual person. It's like, it's like a seesaw. It's like a swinging scale. The more we love everyone, the less we can love someone and vice versa. And now this is not only something that the ones we love or the ones that love us, I should say, are affected by, you know, you can imagine, you know, if, if you love someone and they love everyone, you can kind of feel like, oh, come on, you know, that, that hurts me. Of course we know that. It's not only something that affects the ones that love us, but, but, but ourselves as well in that, in that, in our interconnectedness, we will inevitably endure so much pain through the pain of others, right? We're, we're interconnected, right? The pain that is worsened by the regret that we'll feel when we think back and, and about all the things that we, that we put those people through in the past, such as, you know, the pain that, that they had to endure through when we betrayed them or ignored them in seeking the love of others. So it's not just through this beautiful relationship that, that Cooper and Mulligan's characters engage in that we, that we feel a sense of empathy. And always oh, isn't that beautiful that they fall in love, but we, we feel this very unique kind of heartache when things start to fall apart at certain points in the film, to think about what's going to happen before and after all of these things, how, how the mistakes of our past on the ones we love, even if it is through acts of love, different kinds of love, can ultimately be things that are so grossly painful, even though they might be legal and within the confines of convention, make us just so wrecked inside to think of the things that we might have done to other people, the, the, the people we loved in, in the past. And we, and we almost have to have that constant thinking about, you know, how am I going to reflect on this in the tough times when the, when the things, then bad things happens to the one I love? And I think why this film works, it's not just a sort of tried view on romance and religion, why this film works so well to me is because all of this is so beautifully symbolised through the musicality of Bernstein's world. So it's very similar to the point we made and we talked about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where, where brotherhood and humanism is very aptly symbolised through music and especially harmony. But music sort of has this really unique capacity to be both very lush and wondrous but also harsh and dissonant. You know, you know it's, whether it is or isn't one of those things kind of depends on the connections we choose to form the kinds of notes and perhaps more importantly, how many notes we choose to play together or after one another. And perhaps we need to think about things like sometimes playing less, right? Maybe only the three notes of a major triad is better than, than, than playing every key on the piano, if that makes sense. Well, what's going to sound better to you? You know, really loving the C, E and the G or just mashing your hands down on the piano and maybe giving attention to every single thing and everyone out there. It, it, you know, compassion and cosmopolitanism and this kind of global agape love 
seems great on paper, we do have to wonder and question, you know, what it does to the individuals in our lives, the, the ones that we want to connect with on a deeper level. So we're in this bit of an impasse in one sense because we, we're kind of saying that there is an inevitability. Even if you are the coolest guy in the room, you do have to love others. But sometimes you can love others too much or you can love too many others. You can love the whole club and that puts, you know, the one person you really want to love um, at a distance. Can we somehow think about this 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 dilemma in a way that that, that kind of gets to gets to the core of these issues, not only um, sort of in, in, a, in a helpful, complete sense, but also in a, in a topical in a, in a topical environment. Well, let's talk about this final film now, The Killer, directed by David Fincher, and um, it's basically about a killer. It's about played by Michael Fassbender. He's an assassin, and he has to kill a bunch of people, and that's kind of the story. And again, we have this modern Sigma male archetype guy akin to, you know, a Ryan Gosling and Drive kind of thing. But why I want to do this one, why, why I think this one's a little bit different and, and perhaps it's a little bit more complex than, say, the bike riders is that we see a bit more of an extreme or complex version of this archetype. And in the culture, we're seeing that too. We're seeing people like Jordan Belford or Andrew Tate or Patrick Bateman kind of seep into this world. And young men are kind of glorifying these guys, even though we kind of know they're bad, right? It's almost like as a culture, we know that there's a slippery slope in this realm, but we can't help walk down and we want to see what's on the other side. And I think one of the strengths of this film is that it maintains the allure of this lone wolf archetype, but also takes us to this, takes us kind of to the edge of all of this, you know, to an assassin, someone who kills people for a living. He's completely devoid of moral standards, which is very much carried in the dialogue of the film. But there's sort of two main points that I want to make about about I kind of about these two major ideas that we've spoken about today. So again, we've got this inevitable tether of the outside world, though. Like as much of a lone wolf he is, um, and you know the the extreme outsider still has a tether to the rest of the world, still has connections to others, and I think it kind of steelmans this idea, um, or, or kind of deals with this question in a really uh, brave way by looking at not only sort of the good reasons for this, but also the bad ones, or vice versa. So on, on the good side of things, you know, this guy has a tether to the outside world because he does have a love interest, and she kind of the whole film kind of hinges on her. So we can see that again, even though he is the ultimate lone wolf, he can't help but be connected to someone else in the world. No no matter how much of a cool guy he is on his own or how self-sufficient he is, um, he can't help but have a relationship with someone. He needs someone in his life. Um, but we're going to talk about her a little bit more as, the, as the, this conversation progresses. Just park that for now. On the bad side of things, though, you know, and I think this kind of takes us to more of a, a topical place, a 21st century place, was he can't help be tethered to this sort of overarching, the tentacles of the corporate world in the 21st century. And I think this is a very sort of Fincher-esque element to it, i.e. Fight Club and that sort of thing, where we sort of see the unavoidable imposition of big corporate influence that permeates every facet of life. And in, in the context of this film, it's really noticeable and almost quite comical in a way. It, it festers all the way down to the underbelly of society. And it's interesting the way this film is structured, where it's like structured in like levels, like different carriages of the underbelly all the way up to the the, the ruling classes. That you know, every phase of the film is like another person up the up this chain. And it kind of does convey this idea of society being classified in di- into different sort of into like a specific hierarchical structure. But throughout, we see this running motif, this running spine of corporate involvement. Um, Not only, like he says in the dialogue as well, talking about how like being anonymous in the 21st century is impossible, but there's like this, all this logistical stuff about like what hire car companies he goes through, buying a fob reader off Amazon, all those sorts of things. But there's a second big point I want to make, which is that, 
sort of as conventionally or traditionally deplorable as he is, right? And I've been talking about how he still kind of a bit of, maintains a bit of coolness, a bit of sigma maleness to him. We can kind of understand why he might want to be outside of society and 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 sort of convey how the 21st century surveillance state has this kind of suffocating nature that would kind of like draw someone to a life like this. So let's talk about the word suffocation to begin with, right? We talked before about his girlfriend. Interestingly, she's kind of absent throughout most of this film. And I'd say that the absence of his girlfriend, it's kind of like this thing. It's like his separation from her, especially amidst all of the, the turmoil of this situation, it's kind of through his distance from her that she saved and it's also sort of um, the, goes the other way around where, like, um, you know, her distance from him kind of allows him to do his job, which is saving her. And, and it's also – there's actually a scene where he's him being close to her is literally bad for her because she's in a hospital bed and he has to go – and he wants to go and see her, but her brother's like, no, get away from her. She needs to sleep. And I think that's a really potent symbol of the film, which is, like, we can sometimes have these kind of counterintuitive contradictory moments where – being separate from the ones we're trying to save is actually the best way to save them. And, and, and vice versa, leaving someone to kind of run their own battle, to do their journey, to, 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 to figure out their own sort of stuff kind of is the thing that allows them to become whole and come back to us as a more complete person. I think that's a theme that runs through all of the films we've talked about today. But let's hone in specifically on this idea of suffocation, specifically in the 21st century where sort of we have we're constantly suffocated by this sort of ever the, the 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 constant presence of technology and corporate influence. So if we talk about killers, we're talking about a, a guy that's going about doing a job where he's cutting people's lives off and taking people off this earth. We kind of do ask this question as the film sort of progresses. When we're talking when we're talking about a killer, what are we actually talking about? And and a killer of what exactly? You know, who is really doing the killing here? What's at the core of all this? And what's causing these separations and these these disjunctures and these um, these snappings of tethers? And, and and is that actually strengthening other forms of tethers in doing so? So let's try and bring everything together then this week because we've kind of moved into a couple of directions and, and this been I think there's been some some clear through lines. So we talked about the bike riders. We talked about the fact that you know. You can have this archetypally lone wolf, solo rider archetype that we find completely and utterly enthralling and alluring and, and appealing and, and every little boy wants to be him and every girl wants to be with him. But no matter how cool he is, no matter how many cigarettes he might smoke, his whole life seems to be through the eyes of the beholder. And not only the beholder, but but, but the ones that he wants um, to, 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 to be staring at him. He wants people to look at him. He wants people to know um, that he's there and that he's cool. And so it's, 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 it's one thing to be sort of a lone, a lone wolf type thing, but you can't help but feel, you can't help but have a connection to the outside world and to other people. But when we talk about Master, we're talking about the idea that as, as beautiful as that is a thing on a humanist level or on a musical level, to have harmonious relationships with all different people and all different things and to enjoy the world in all its natural uh, beauty, th- there is sort of a, a negative proportionate seesaw um, relationship between these two concepts of loving all people, loving every member of the club and loving a single individual and putting all your in- intentions and all of your attention towards 
um, and focusing all that towards one person. We have to be very careful that we weigh up our, that the different species of love that we have, all the different kinds of love we have, that we make sure that, that we attribute all those different kinds of love to the right people to maintain that kind of holistic um, love and interconnectedness that makes everyone feel that they are interconnected and to the extent that they ought to feel connected. But these ideas sort of seem to be at odds. On one hand, it's almost saying that, you know, we need to make sure that we maintain a level of independence but also keep people together but not too many people because too many people makes us go alone again, it makes them feel alone. There's something in between. I think what we're ultimately getting at is this idea of suffocation, that we're actually okay with connecting with other people, however that might mean, but it's this idea of not being able to be on our own, not being able to be ourselves when we need to be for the benefit of ourselves and for the benefit of the people we love, when we're being constantly suffocated, when the tentacles of big hegemonic institutions and systems and, and, and these, these overarching entities have us by the throat and, and, and are daring to kill us. So we have to sort of think about this, right? Do we want to form clubs that are underpinned by harmony? Or do, we want to, or do we want to continue to look at each other from a distance through the lens of a surveillance camera? Because my fear is if we choose the latter or continue to do so, what's going to be reciprocated is that we're going to be looked back at but through the lens of a sniper rifle. Well, that's a very cheery way to finish this extra special episode of Sacred Cinema this week on 2XX98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Be sure to get involved. Uh, this is Radiothon. Jump onto our website for all the details there. Be sure to subscribe if you're not subscribed already for all those great prizes. Um, but thanks for joining me for this London Film Festival special. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much for tuning in.